0: Well, I don't think there is one vision for what Ethereum could do. I think there's uh, many different visions. And I think uh, once Ethereum manages to solve its uh, scaling problems, it's going to be in a much better place to uh, help uh, be the substrate that allows all of those visions
1: to happen. Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman. And we're here to help you become more bankless. What's next with Vitalik Buterin? That is the topic today. We're doing this episode in two parts. The focus is what's next in general, and specifically, what's next for Ethereum. In part one, which is being released today, we're going through the Ethereum roadmap from a technical perspective. This is the short to medium term. In part two, we touch on the social the philosophical, some of the deeper questions around the thing that we've built called Ethereum and its impact for the world. That's going to come out on the following Monday. I'm going to give you a teaser of part one before we get into it. And also part two, part one, that's today's episode. We're going to get Vitalik's reaction on the merge. It took eight years to get here. How did he feel? We ask him that question. Ethereum also no longer burns energy. What are the green arguments for Proof of Stake? Vitalik makes them. And is this whole sustainability thing really a big deal? We get into that subject. Why did Proof of Stake take so long? It's in the back of all of our minds. We ask Vitalik that question as well, and he describes the journey to get here, to the merge, to Proof of Stake. What's left is another question. We review the entire roadmap from a technical perspective. We also ask about some concerns. Is Vitalik concerned about staking centralization, for instance? Is he concerned about Ethereum's future censorship resistance? That is all in part one. That is what you are about to hear today. In part two, we get into the social and philosophical. We zoom out. We talk about Ethereum holistically. Is it a network state? Is it like a country? Is that what we've created, a whole digital country? Or is it a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization if it is a DAO, how in general should DAOs be governed? Should we govern? Should we learn from the corporate world and institute some sort of corporate governance policy? Or are there lessons for us from the political science uh, side of things? We ask Vitalik about that. We also end with, which I think is a really interesting topic. I've never heard Vitalik cover what's next in AI in artificial intelligence. We ask Vitalik to speak about AI. Apparently, he just went on a recent trip to Silicon Valley, talked to some of the foremost experts in the AI field. So we asked him, I mean, the basics on everyone's mind, is AI coming to destroy humanity or there, will there be some peaceful coexistence? Will there be an intersection with crypto? Is it crypto versus AI in a cage match? Crypto representing decentralized interests and AI on the centralized side? Also, this was interesting to me, why vitalik thinks advanced ai might actually be happening sooner than he previously thought we talk about all of those things on what's next that's in part two that is coming out the next monday david what were your thoughts in this
2: episode yeah well done on that intro by the way that was the longest intro that we've done on the podcast (laughs) Thank uh yeah what what's next is a really good question and it's definitely the thing that people are asking the current state of crypto as there no, doesn't really seem to be too much on the horizon in terms of like a narrative, uh, the inflation narrative is gone. Uh, you know, COVID's over. Uh, the merge is over with. So, what is next? Um, but there's plenty of things that are next on the Ethereum roadmap. So this is an updated review, part one, updated review on the Ethereum roadmap, just to get that resynced and downloaded into your brain. But I really think it's that second part, this, uh, the the episode that's going to come next week, uh, that I think is the more interesting things. And as the world seems to be accelerating, Ryan, like technology seems to be getting faster. Uh, I know Arc is down in price, but doesn't mean it's down in thesis. Kathy's word thesis that the future is coming faster than people expect it to, I definitely subscribe to. And I think Vitalik does as well. And that starts to uh, be be shown in some of his conversations with people outside of the crypto space, um, like you alluded to in the AI space. All of these things are around the horizon. And so we need to be aware of them, because uh, if you're not seeing them coming at you, they're going to blindside you and you're not going to be ready for it. Uh, and so understanding these conversations is the intersections of crypto and AI how DAOs operate and how they should be governed. Uh, And what is the long-term network state roadmap for Ethereum and what it may become in relation to that. I think if you understand these questions, you are so far ahead of the rest of the world. Uh, And so that's the episode that we try to produce here on this week and next week.
1: I will say in the first part, there is a section where uh, the terms get a little esoteric and, and technical for you. That's where we go through the roadmap with the merge, the splurge, the purge, the verge, et cetera, et cetera. You'll hear it when we get to that part. Um, there is another episode that we did with Vitalik going through this entire roadmap, more in layman's terms, and we'll refer to that. There'll be a link in the show notes, show notes for that. Some terms like DVT, which we didn't define, or SSV. This is uh, distributed validator technology, shared secret validators. This is about decentralizing the validator network. Of course, we've also done episodes entirely on this EIP. That's an Ethereum improvement proposal called 4844, which is basic sharding. Proto Dank sharding. So this scales up the transactions per second on roll-ups that Ethereum can support. One last thing for you premium subscribers, a special gift. We've actually released both part one and part two today for you. So you don't have to wait. It's all available on the premium feed. You also will have raw access to the debrief where David and I give our thoughts on the Vitalik show. These are our unfiltered shot thoughts on the episode that was Uh, And there's a link in the show notes. If you have not gone premium, upgraded your membership from free to premium, you can go do that and get access to the full episode now. Well, without further ado, our episode with Vitalik Buterin. But first... A word from our sponsors bankless nation want to introduce you yet again to vitalik buterin he is a crypto economic researcher he's a builder he is a philosopher this is the first time he is appearing on bankless in a post merge world he also has this fantastic blog on his website you got to check out i read whenever an article is published at vitalik.ca uh, and there's a book out called proof of stake which is a compilation of many of those blog posts. It just came out earlier this month. He also happens to be the guy who wrote the Ethereum white paper. Vitalik, welcome to Bankless post Proof of Work post Merge. How you doing? Uh, great. I'm uh, you know
0: obviously uh, we're really happy that this uh, big long eight year journey has, is uh, finally at its completion. Um. You know, really happy that proof of uh, stake is uh, here, and it's uh, fully here, it's running, it's uh, actually powering the Ethereum chain. The whole transition seems to have uh, happened even far more smoothly than uh, pretty much anyone, including myself, expected. And, uh, you know, just... Happy that uh, that whole uh, chapter and um, you know the chapter of uh, all of the various uh, trolls on the yet uh, Twitter doubting whether or not proof of stake is even possible is uh, over in the Ethereum ecosystem and now gets to um, you know move over and start focusing uh, full speed ahead on the next thing.
2: Yeah. So what are the trolls going to fo- uh, focus on after the merge is done? Now that we have proof of stake, because they're not going to they're not going to just uh, you know wave the right flag, right? They're going to move on to the next thing.
0: That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, I think. Uh, If I was a troll, I would probably be waving one of two flags. So like one of the flags you can wave is obviously that uh, proof of stake is actually bad. And uh, the other flag you could wave is that sharding will never happen, Mm. right? And like if you want to wave the flag of uh, sharding never happening, then, you know, there are arguments that you could make about how like, oh, you know, the peer-to-peer networking of data availability sampling is actually complicated and uh, that stuff is... uh, Not going to happen, and actually Ethereum's going to hit scalability bottlenecks soon, and uh, you know, blah 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 blah. But like betting against the Ethereum ecosystem's ability to produce technology is uh, something that clearly does not have a very good track record. So I think, uh, yeah, no, if I was a troll, I would definitely kind of stick to the uh, ideological side and just try to argue that proof of stake is bad
2: somehow. (laughs) Uh, Vitalik, Mm. you you said that. This, the merge was even smoother than you expected. Uh, so I'm wondering if, mm. if you could just like put us into the mind of Vitalik as we were going through the merge, because this has been, I mean, the, the Beacon Chain launched, of course, in December of 2020. But proof of stake as an idea has been along even longer than that. And efforts on the Beacon Chain has been, uh, you know, started before the Beacon Chain launched, of course. Uh, so this has been a long time coming. Uh, So how does it feel to be in the post-merge world and uh, what was it like to be watching this thing go through? Uh, And and also, what was it like to be watching the world watch Ethereum in this moment?
0: Yeah, so I think uh, one of the reasons why we're all surprised that the merge went really well is that none of the test net merges really quite went that amazingly smoothly, right? Like the... uh, most recent r- merge before the yeah, real one, I think yeah, it was, I uh, th- think the Robsted merge, uh, it, it even did not finalize for about an hour because uh, slightly more than a third of uh, all of the nodes did not make it through the transition and there was some code glitch and they had to update. Um, one of the merges before, like, it only had something like 80% online. Like, there was always some client combination that just did not survive the transition. Um, and, you know, there were various bugs. I think, uh, one of the reasons uh, why that ended up not carrying over to the mainnet and the mainnet ended up going great, actually, is that a lot of the bugs were not really bugs with the implementation. They were bugs with the settings, right? As like test nets, they all tend to have, you know, various weird and like settings choices and uh, people are just less used to connecting to test nets and, uh, up to making sure they're connected in the right way than they are with the main network. And so we ended up having a lot of bugs on that side. But if you're just watching as a more naive observer from further away, you might think like, Oh, you know, every one of these uh, tests that merges had at least a bit of an issue. And, uh, you know, surely the main one is going to have uh, even more problems just because it's uh, a much bigger ecosystem. And, um, you know, it's all of these thousands of people and we don't have as good an ability to immediately reach everyone. But, you know, no. And uh, actually, the main that uh, merge just uh, went incredibly smoothly. Uh, so the process of uh, what waiting for the merge to happen, you know, it was... Uh, in some ways, surprisingly uneventful, like, uh, you know, there was a call, there was a Zoom call, and uh, everyone was, or at least lots of people were on that call, and I'm sure lots of people were on other calls as well, and uh, we were just, uh, you know, talking about what the merge is, talking about what the merge uh, means for the world, and uh, then you know after we got through a few speeches it's like oh wait okay now we're less than uh, 5 minutes away and then everyone just uh, started waiting for the countdown and uh, eventually you know the total terminal uh, bl- the terminal block which uh, is the block that surpasses the total terminal difficulty was hit so and that's the block that like, surpassed the threshold for basically how many hashes the proof of work chain is supposed to do before it turns off. Uh, and uh, that was hit. And then immediately after that, the first proof of stake block happened and everyone celebrated. And then we waited um, you know, 12 minutes for it to finalize. And then we finalized and then everyone uh, celebrated again. And uh, like, that was basically it. <laughs> it's really not to, so it. simple. Yeah, it, uh, easy, right? We we should have done this years
1: ago. But <laughs> but uh Vitalik um what to David's kind of second question part of I I think the interest from the Ethereum community is is watching the world react. To the merge mm-hmm. right and and you were mentioning the trolls earlier and you know if you were a troll what you'd do is probably like uh, argue that proof of stake is a bad idea entirely as I was like looking at the world's reaction that there, there was one thing that kept popping up in mainstream media and that was this energy reduction narrative this mm-hmm. decrease in electricity uh, cost and I, I do think the trolls, at least from a mainstream perspective right are going to have a hard time arguing with mainstream that proof of work is superior to proof of stake from a you know a green perspective from a climate change perspective but what's your take on this the whole eth energy reduction thing do you think that is overrated do you think that it's it's underrated how much does this actually matter in the scheme of things yeah i mean i think there's a couple of uh, levels at which you can look at that
0: question one is the object level issue of like how important uh, the climate issue is and uh, how big of an impact uh, the switch to of stake is on the climate right so i think my view on the uh, climate issue is kind of fairly boring and moderate which is like it's not a literal existential risk in the sense that you know it's uh not going to kill anywhere close to the number of people that like you know so- something like world war three would but at the same time it's uh like a really crappy and terrible thing, and uh, if you look at you know the studies of uh, what worst case global warming could lead to, it's like reducing the GDP of uh, some of the already poorest uh, countries in the world by like a factor of two or three, right? So, it's uh, a you know, quite a a big deal as far as uh, big deals that actually uh, exist. Uh, In the world are concerned. And um, I think uh, anything that we can do to try to move uh, beyond our uh, carbon heavy present is uh, definitely a a good thing. And I mean, obviously, there are all these um, arguments that uh, proof of work proponents uh, like to trot out that like, oh, you know, actually, this is incentivizing uh, green energy production, or actually, this is using energy that would not be used for other purposes, because proof of work is really good at like finding the energy that would not be useful anywhere else. But no, generally when I look at those arguments from far away, they yeah, always have this kind of feeling of self-serving bias. It's like, it just feels like the algorithm that these people are running is like not like oh you know let me neutrally figure out whether or not proof of work is good or bad. It's like oh let me yeah try my best to come up with arguments for as, you know, like soldiers in this, uh, rhetorical war of, and you know, like help me justify the cause I already, uh, uh,
2: decided a long ago I stand for, but you know, even you're, you're when saying you it's know, an, a convenient rationale. It's like, oh, it's really convenient yeah, that proof of work. People think that proof of mm-hmm. work is green
0: totally like it's uh, the, the arguments to me feel like imagine if i uh, someone from uh, philip morris uh, came to you and said like hey you know philip morris is actually an incredibly ethical company because we're contributing to the incentive to cure lung cancer right right like <laughs> this is basically what was, what Slow clap. <laughs> yeah um, the, um and then you know there's all of these like methane like f- flaring things and uh I think the 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 challenge with that is that like you can always identify you know like these really specific situations where there's something really unusual about the yeah energy market, but like the more you zoom out and like think about this in the long game, it's like you know no, if 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 you consume energy, then that in on uh, increases energy consumption and uh, energy consumption for the next while is is going to contribute to climate issues and you know there are going to be like these little discrepancies in uh both directions but the little discrepancies over time they're just going to i think uh average out but just like the one big fact in the center of it is the thing that's going to dominate uh so yeah i think uh yeah like You know, people argue that, you know, proof of work is like good at sort of grabbing those uh, little nooks of energy that nothing else is because proof of work has this special property that you can do it from anywhere. But at the same time, proof of work has this property that if you want to make good use of your hardware, you have to keep it running 24-7, right? Like this concept of, oh, I'm going to only turn on my hardware at those specific times when there is spare electricity and otherwise I'm going to shut it off. Like that's total BS, right? Just because like the hard proof of hardware cost is a big portion of the all proof of work cost. And so if you want to be competitive, um, you know, you have to use your machine and you have to make good use of your machine until uh, Moore's law uh, causes that machine to expire and requires you to replace it with a better machine. Uh, so it, yeah, in, in general, I'm I guess uh, on the whole, not convinced by any of that. And I think, uh, you know, reducing energy consumption is, is uh, good and great. And I'm, uh, immensely glad that uh, we as an ecosystem have done it so that's the first level of the question right the second level of the question is uh i guess from a, a kind of more selfish uh, ethereum ecosystem uh, point of view like obviously yeah uh, the fact that we're not contributing to breaking the environment anymore is uh good for for ethereum from a narrative perspective and uh, I think there are lots of signs that this is actually true. Like I've personally talked to a bunch of people in you know corporate and government contexts, and just lots of different places that are like, hey, we want to do blockchain stuff, but there's just too many people within our organization that are really don't want to be contributing to um, you know making the planet blow up and. Uh, You know, if uh, the merge completes, then like a lot of them have even said, like, you know, yeah, I'll be much more excited about using Ethereum. And I think a lot of that's true. I think uh, the uh, subconscious line of thinking that at least uh, some of these people that I'm kind of dismissively referring to as trolls as uh, referring to is uh, trying to make is like, oh, you know this environment thing is like a centralized world economic forum ideology, and uh, chances are, if you're into that stuff, then you're into centralized world economic forum stuff uh, generally. And so, like most of uh, pe- people who care about that are going to also care about, um, you know, making sure we have global financial surveillance because they think that's the only way to prevent crime or whatever. And so, why are you even trying to go after those people? And uh, so you know the people that you crypto should be going after are like these sort of steely based people who understands that like that centralized world economic forum ideology is uh is total crap and like actually the environment's going to be fine and like methane is great for the environment and everything's going to be solar within five years anyway and so that like i think there's this sort of implied subconscious uh, viewpoints that you know Really, there's just two kinds of people, one or the other, and uh, the yeah, the World Economic Forum bug eaters are a lost cause, and so you might as well go after the base cool people, and the base cool people don't really care about the environment, and so you might as well use proof of work. But I feel like that viewpoint is just false. Like I've just in, I don't know, I've uh, you know talked to lots of people. I've been to uh, like 53 countries now, and uh, you know, chatted with all kinds of people in various industries and governments, and like. I don't think it's true that like there's this binary, and I think there's uh, plenty of people that like really do deeply believe in the uh, you know the freedom thing and the uh, open source thing and the uh, you know decentralized uh, like censorship resistant global neutral platform thing, but like also do care about like not bl- blowing up the planet at the same time, and like I feel like the Ethereum community in general is probably sort of more you know, on average, uh, t- uh, tilted toward that middle, though there's definitely people on uh, on all sides of the spectrum. So I mean, you know, it it, it sort of ties into the uh, social and cultural bet that I think uh, Ethereum is uh, making that uh, some of those uh, kind of hardcore proof of work proponents are taking the opposite side of the bet. So, you know, I'm happy with the side of the bet I've made, and I yeah, plan, plan to keep making it. So um,
1: we'll see. By the way, for YouTube viewers, the reason David and I have a smile on our face is because we just noticed uh, Vitalik's login name is uh, Adam Back, <laughs> which is uh, <laughs> maybe one of the, of the CEOs <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of, of, of the Philip Morris's fighting for proof of work. <laughs> uh, but Vitalik, can, can I ask you, um, is it material? Like, is the difference between Ethereum switching from proof of work hmm. to proof of stake? Is that, does that have an actual material impact? I think you tweeted out a, a Justin a Drake figure, and I'm not sure where he got this number, where he sourced it. Something like a 0.2% reduction mm-hmm. on worldwide electricity consumption, which feels very material. Mm-hmm. What kind of numbers have you seen? And mm-hmm. are these actually material numbers, or do you think it was like hmm. much ado about nothing all along? I mean, uh, the 0.2% figure definitely roughly lines up with other
0: statistics that I've seen, right? Like we've seen statistics that like Ethereum mining uses about as much electricity as um, I think it was either half of Singapore sometimes or Austria sometimes. And like those countries are about 0.1% of the world population, but they're a wealthy 0.1%. Uh, so I think uh, if you just look at all those different estimates, like somewhere vaguely in the 0.2% range uh, does make sense um i mean the one argument that i have seen people make is that like oh that hash power is not going away it's just going to go to ethereum classic but and that's clearly true to some extent in the short term but that just obviously can't be true on the medium or long term right like in the medium or long term like we've basically reduced the uh, amount of uh you've um reward that goes in, uh, gets paid out to people who participate in like gpu style uh, proof of work by probably a factor of 10 right and so in the medium and long term the yeah, amount of effort going into
2: that style of proof of work is also going to go down by a factor of 10 yeah yeah we've we've certainly reduced the incentive therefore it should it should follow that there will be less miners in the future we were we were talking to Danny Ryan and Tim Beko yesterday on on the live stream uh, and Danny gave out this metric that I want to run by you where Yes, we killed 0.2 percent of global electricity consumption. But he said that if ether price went 10x, then it would have actually have been two percent. And I'm wondering if that's how mm. the math checks out. And and so like really, it's like yes, we mm. killed it at 0.2 percent. But if we believe that Ethereum is going to be the global settlement layer of the future, of everything, then mm-hmm. the future energy consumption that we eliminated is actually much more significant and is actually the bigger story. I'm wondering if, if that math checks out and what you be, think about that.
0: Yeah, uh, I think I fully agree with that. I mean, it you know, obviously it all depends on your projections for just how big the uh, Ethereum and uh, crypto thing is going to get. Uh, but... Uh, In the bull cases where Ethereum keeps becoming a more and more significant thing, then yeah, absolutely, it's a much bigger savings than Mm 0.2%.
2: Vitalik, um, like like we alluded to earlier, the road to proof of stake has been long and winding uh, with a few dead ends, a few backtracks, and then moving forward to where we ultimately got here today. Um, But for the uh, listeners that came in during the 2021 bull market or later in 2022, uh, they might not know why Ethereum proof of stake took so long. So I'm wondering if you can kind of just, for the listeners that weren't here in the eras of 2017 to 2020, kind of give a, a recap of, to the journey thus far. Like, why did proof of stakes take so long? And what were the uh, the dead ends and the roads uh, that we almost went down? What, what were the, some of those that, that path like? Yeah,
0: I mean, so... The roadmap really did change a huge amount over the last few years, right? Like the in the 2017 to the beginning of 2018 there was this whole Casper FFG concept where we would basically build the proof of stake system as a smart contract on top of the proof of work chain. Um, And then step one would be to kind of get that running. And then uh, step uh, two would be to, uh, you know, have this kind of separate sharding chain. And then we would really slowly migrate the thing. Uh, And then before 2017, the uh, roadmap was something even more different. It's like, hey, let's uh, start a new chain from scratch. And then basically just completely retire the existing one and uh, demand all of the applications to actively move over. The in, and then in the middle of uh, two thousand eighteen, um, Justin uh, Drake made this uh, post on a pragmatic BLS aggregation, where he argued that the uh, Ethereum blockchain should make really heavy use of uh, BLS aggregation in order to um, support as uh, many validators as possible and uh, be able to be a more decentralized chain, and that I think. Uh, Ended up being a really uh, prescient decision, ended up really simplifying the architecture and helping us a lot. Uh, But one of the consequences of that meant that we would not be able to actually build the thing as a smart contract. And instead, it would would make much more sense to build a new chain and uh, then find some way to migrate the Ethereum system over to it over time. And so work on the beacon chain started. Now, then simultaneously, there was this parallel track of uh, working on uh, different ways of uh, how to transition existing Ethereum into the uh, beacon chain, right? So in 2018 to 19, there was this concept of execution environments where it's like you can think of them as being sort of like roll-ups, except much more enshrined and uh, where the chain would not just provide data, it would also provide a minimal execution layer. Um, and uh, the idea is that the existing Ethereum system would become one of those rollups. I think back then we were also really contemplating trying to upgrade from the EVM to uh, WebAssembly. And uh, that's one of those things that we ended up dropping over time, right? Like One of the unfortunate things that I think was necessary as part of the merge was that there were a lot of uh, dreams that kind of got dropped and the yeah, ambition did end up decreasing a bit. Uh, so the desire to improve the VM ended up uh, kind of dropping off. And part of that was definitely just us noticing that out of all of the ETH killers, the only ones that really had significant success were the ones that just uh, accepted the EVM and the ones that, that uh, tried to argue that, Oh, the EVM is total crap and we'll replace it with something much more performance and better. Those maybe with the exception of uh, Solana ended up uh, kind of falling off mostly. Um, there's uh, obviously the question of like just how many other things we could use the merge as an opportunity to reform, and I think we did manage to reform some things, but a lot of other things did manage to like basically stay again as they are. I mean, like we... right now, the Ethereum clients are still processing the pre-merge chain, right? And there was a desire, I think, to use the merge as a reset opportunity and uh, allow Ethereum clients to not have to process that history. And I think that still will happen with uh, EIP4444, but that's something that we're going to have to wait a bit longer for. Um, So there's just a lot of these little things on which... uh, The ambition of the project decreased a bit, but it uh, slowly turned into a a more and more realistic thing. And then, you know, finally, we settled on a design and uh, we even settled on a a very simplified design for the merge. uh,
2: And uh, then we went for it. And the design that we finally settled on, the one that we know of today, which is now current Ethereum, do you think if we had like waited and like thought about it more and done some more research, we would have found a different design? Or do you feel like the design that we settled on is like the final logical conclusion of Ethereum proof-of-stake? So there's two questions there, I think.
0: One is, what is the better long-term form of uh, proof-of-stake? And the mm-hmm. other is if the research team ha- and only the research team had had 500 years t- to spin its wheels could it have come up with a better way of uh, managing the transition uh so for the first question i think the answer is like no we are currently very far from uh, uh what a-, a truly optimal ethereum of stake would look like right and um you know recently we've been having these uh discussions about uh single slot finality which is just a big redesign of the uh, consensus uh, there's uh, all of these designs around like merkle trees and different ways to implement charting and uh, different ways to implement deposit and withdraw logic and all of this stuff um, so still a lot of improvement work to go and i think we do still have the opportunity to keep working hard over the next few years to make that improvement actually happen uh, but then on the question of uh was the merge as it was done the best way to do the transition? I would say maybe yes, maybe no, right? Uh, so I think uh, if I could like give myself a research time capsule back to 2014, I probably would have said... Um, don't bother with the Casper FFG design and instead implement a simpler version of chain based proof of stake first. And so that you can move to that in like maybe around 2018 and then like properly improve uh, proof of stake uh, later on a, a more relaxed schedule. Well, like I do think that we yeah, set ourselves uh, goals that were a little bit too high for the yeah, proof of stake that we moved to for the first round, and we even ended up not accomplishing some of those goals. Right, like there's a lot of these security issues that uh, ar- arose from the specific design of the Casper proof system in the way that the LMD ghost and fork choice side and the yeah, BFT consensus side like uh, interact with each other and that's uh, one of the bigger things that we're going to have to resolve with the single slot finality change uh but um so yeah basically i think uh create a simpler and a less powerful uh, proof of stake and uh, move to it earlier would have been uh, one of the bigger changes uh, that i would have made but the format of the merge i think was uh, excellent like I still don't think that there is a better merge format that we could have come up with. And I definitely hope that other chains like uh, Zcash and uh, Dogecoin are probably too... Uh, proof of Work who is a core dev community, as I talk to a lot and I'm pretty friendly with. like I hope they learn from the merge and they yeah, move over to proof of stake over the next four years or so.
1: So, Vitalik, if you, if you could go back in time, it sounds like one thing you might change is you would have simplified the proof of stake kind of conception and maybe got it in the roadmap uh, a little bit earlier, deployed it a little bit earlier. I mean, as you mentioned, we're here now and that's fantastic. But we did have some false starts and some meanderings uh, mm-hmm. along the way. And it, I think for everybody involved, it took longer than we thought. I mean, eight years. And proof of stake had been in the Ethereum social contract from the beginning. Yet there was also a benefit. And maybe that benefit came in the form of like um, proof of work distribution, Right. So more ETH uh, stake was distributed over uh, a greater number of entities, I I guess we would assume or suppose with with uh, proof of work distribution. And so that was a benefit. Um, I mean, overall, is there anything else big that you would go back and change or are you satisfied with uh, how this turned out? I mean,
0: definitely yeah, had we known the results of the meanderings, it would have been uh, great if we could just skip to the results immediately, right? So the design of the proof of stake system and all of the choices of like, should it be a chain or a smart contract or something else as one side of it? The other side of it is the layer two scaling roadmap. Like I think optimism and Arbitrum could be could have been finished and fully trustless by now had we known from the start that rollups are the way to go, and um, you know we had not spent as many resources kind of going down the state channels and plasma rabbit holes. Like, I think going down those rabbit holes was useful from the uh, point of view of, like, inventing 10,000 ways not to make a light bulb. And I do think that state channels uh, (laughs) make a lot of sense in some specific use cases, but I definitely think that we uh, made a uh, false step in... uh, like at first really yeah, hoping that that would be the way that Ethereum applications would scale in general. And then with Plasma, like there was this hope that we could find some way to generalize it, but uh, that ended up just not working. And then two years later, I think we ended up learning that like, well, actually pretty much nobody wants a uh, scaled Ethereum that's just a payment system. Everyone who's in Ethereum already wants uh, something general purpose. And so there's no point in
2: making even a roll up unless it's a general purpose one. Mm-hmm. Vitalik, you know, we use this uh, going West metaphor. We're on a journey into the mm. frontier. There's, it's a, there's a dark uh, fog of war ahead of us, but some of the guests on the podcast are people that have scouted into the unknown and come back to tell us what's in the future. And so as somebody who knows the history of Ethereum very, very well, and also understands cryptography and crypto economics very, very well, can you like place us in history or on like, you know, a map or a journey of where we are going and where Ethereum is. Uh, I, I remember you saying something along the lines of post proof of stake. Ethereum is about 55% completed. Could you talk about like, where are we in Ethereum's hmm. trajectory and where are we in, in crypto's uh, relevancy to the world?
0: Uh, Sure. Uh, so I think uh, one way of uh, looking at it from a uh, trajectory of the protocol point of view was to look at the uh, roadmap from last year and basically ask it how much progress has been made. Right. Uh, So if let me just uh, Google this uh, now and I'll check Ethereum roadmap on uh, Google Images and I'm sure it'll be yeah, up there. There it is. Um, Click,
1: click and as you're talking uh, Vitalik, mm-hmm. we will be uh we'll be viewing this on on youtube so we can see and and you're referring Amazing. to the merge surge verge purge exactly. splurge, Yep. red man there it is mm-hmm. so
0: if we want so just uh looking at the uh, five tracks right we can go uh, through the tracks one by one uh, so the merge is uh completed now um the things in the merge section that are not completed are um, one is the post-merge hard fork with withdrawals, right? That's um, obviously the yeah, one of the next uh, big priorities right after the merge. It's a pretty simple hard fork, and uh, like we basically yeah know what to do. There's a spec. Um, I think the main debate at this point is to do it at the same time as four eight four four, or do it um earlier and then uh, do four eight four four a bit later. Um, but uh, you know, otherwise it's like. We're not far from it. Um, distributed validators, I think, uh, still still progressing. Actually, haven't uh, checked up on that team uh, for for a while, but I'm I imagine they've made quite a bit of progress. Though it's uh, not quite a hundred percent done yet. Is and that then um, if we look DVT at- from Obel? Is that like is y- that what that is? Yes, it's uh, okay. DVT, aka SSV. SSV, AKA, right, right, right. Cool. Yeah. Right. So th- and then if we look in the longer term extras, uh, single secret leader election, there's been some great work on the cryptography there. The cryptography itself has been uh, published. Um, single SWOT confirmations, or what we now call single SWOT finality, that's uh, a bigger item. And I think it's an item that has been really moved uh, earlier in the roadmap because people just recognize the value and the importance of it much more. And I think this is one of those things that we are going to have to kind of have a uh, big public discussion with the community at some point, because uh, there are huge benefits to a uh, Sega uh, finality, but at the same time, there are some uh, costs. Uh, so like, for example, some comp- compromises either to the uh, 32 eth uh, validator balance uh, property uh, or to uh, the uh, level of uh, economic finality that uh, you uh, we can expect and uh, just like different trade-offs of uh, what kinds of things would have to be sacrificed if uh, we want to be able to uh, actually uh, like have uh, finality in like say yeah uh, 32 seconds or something like that. Um, and then better signature aggregation is just a subset of single slot finality at this point. So that's the merge. Uh, basically, the uh, entire left half of uh, that box is finished and the right half of the box is still to go, which is great. Um, the surge. Uh, so there, um, I think... Uh, Things have obviously been reshuffled a bit, right? So uh, back then there was the whole 4488 versus 4844 stuff. And I think uh, lately 4844 has been uh, winning and uh, it's basically fully specified. It's just uh, waiting an implementation. Um, And so that would be, I would call 4844 the equivalent of uh, basic sharding. Though I think one of the yeah, interesting things with Dank sharding, which happened after this roadmap, is that uh, Dank sharding really moved us away from the concept of having discrete shards, like shards as individual units. Instead, we're just moving to this more amorphous concept of like there's these big data blobs, and there is a distributed procedure for verifying the data blobs. But uh, you know, otherwise there's just blobs, and there isn't like a hard point where one of the one section of a blob ends and another section of a blob begins. Um, so I would say there, you know, I would uh, say, yeah, the short term uh, call data expansion box got short circuited a bit. The basic sharding box, that, that green bar is probably a bit further. And then the uh, basic sharding and data availability sampling, like that's a, a really big research area. Uh, so, you know, it's still uh, quite a bit of stuff left to go. Um. Then the verge of vertical trees, that one is um, interesting in that I think there's been a lot of uh, progress on implementing uh, vertical trees. The main sticking point at this point is that the transition from our existing tree structure to a vertical tree is going to be something that's like a big engineering challenge to implement, and there's still debates about how to do it and i think in general it's been deprioritized a little bit uh relative to getting scalability out because scalability is just like so incredibly important to the core to ethereum um the purge um is uh so history expiry eip4444 uh, making some uh good progress um banning self destruct i think I may at some point we just have to pull, uh, pull the trigger and say we're gonna do it um State expiry. State expiry has been deprioritized a lot uh, because of uh, proposer builder separation. Like basically, if you have PBS and you have statelessness, then the number of actors that actually have to hold the entire state is really tiny, right? Regular validators don't have to hold the state because regular uh, validators would just mm-hmm. have to verify other people's blocks. They're not uh, creating their own blocks, and so. That's something that uh, where the order of operations also got uh, reworked a bit, right? But uh, you know, which is a good thing. Like, I think a state a state expiry being deprioritized that does give us a lot of uh, freedom to figure out all the other stuff first, um, and then all of these other things about just like making the Ethereum protocol cleaner and like getting rid of RLP, cleaning up the block structure, like. There's people who, like, I think wants to do them, but they're kind of low priority. And, uh, I think, uh, Ethereum is going to be in a place where it's able to do these, uh, kind of thing, these sort of more aesthetic things that just have to do with making the protocol simpler and look cleaner, but probably would need another, like, a year or so of, uh, firefighting, right? Like, this is one of the big things that, big changes that's going to happen with Ethereum protocol development over the next, uh, five years, which is really, Moving away from firefighting mode and uh, moving from you know we got to get this fast 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 the community's angry at us uh, you mm-hmm. know people really really want this stuff and uh, now to this kind of more calmer a uh, uh, trajectory of uh, you know really valuing stability and sustainability mm-hmm. and. I think the merge already like really uh, reduces the pressure on the yeah, Ethereum ecosystem a lot. Uh, but I think a yeah, successful uh, transition, at least to proto Dank sharding, is going to be, be yeah, the rest of the way. And then you know full Dank sharding can happen on its own time. Cleanups can happen on their own time. Vertical trees can happen on their own time. And so uh, that you know at least the the pressure on the ecosystem to do those things quickly can uh, for at least uh, be a bit lower. And then. The splurge. Uh, so Vitalik.
1: EVM. Imp- yeah. Before we get to the splurge, can we mm-hmm. just kind of summarize for folks? Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll, I'll remind Bankless listeners that we did an entire episode on the Ethereum roadmap where we went through the merge, uh, surge, verge, mm-hmm. purge, and splurge in mm-hmm. extreme detail. So make sure you catch that episode. But high level here, the the functions of these various categories. The merge is about transitioning to proof of stake, and that's pretty much done there are a few things to tie off but we're getting real close it's almost done the surge is about scalability of the ethereum network ethereum economy in the form primarily of roll-up scalability and the big uh, functionality to watch there is uh um, the proto dank sharding eip um, 4844 uh, is did i get the eip right 4844 No, Mm -hmm. sorry, what's the, yes. Uh, The EIP 4844 for for proto-dank sharding, which is maybe upcoming, Uh, don't know when yet, but that's the search. And then the Verge is about statelessness and that helps us further decentralize the network, allow individuals to run nodes. Uh, and so does the purge. It increases the it eliminates some of the the technical debt, allows us to run nodes better. And when we have the merge, the surge, the verge, and the purge, that's kind of the the base functionality. And I, I wanted to just pause there and reiterate that before we get to the splurge because it feels like the splurge, those that's the goodie bag. Those are all of the extra things that we'd like to implement. Uh, but the core of this thing from a roadmap perspective is probably the first four categories. Uh, is that you know approximately right is that in in the ballpark mm-hmm. Vitalik? yeah I think that's fair um I mean I do think that
0: like one connotation that it's important to get away from is the yeah, connotation that the sporge is uh or anything in the sporge bucket is less important than the other four um I think uh you no know, there are the individual items are smaller but a lot of them are quite valuable so like for example account abstraction is very valuable. Um, pbs or some kind of uh, like stabilization of the mev situation is um, obviously super valuable and uh, with the discussion of uh, censorship resistance it uh, becomes even more important evm improvements are um like that's a smaller one but you know like evm big into arithmetic it can uh, be a big deal uh basically let us uh do a lot more cryptography inside of the vm and probably get half the benefits of uh, what we wanted to do with wasm uh, back in the day um zk snarking everything is like actually a really big deal uh so like i think for if i had to choose between giving up the verge and giving up zk snarks i would probably give up on the verge uh the yeah yeah like the one of the, the the reasons why is because uh, like ZK snarks could give us a sort of poor man's verge where basically we don't bother with vertical trees and we solve the uh, witness size problem by uh, snarking the witness instead. And now th- that that approach like it's very ugly it has a lot of weaknesses it'll require a far larger amount of uh like work for the stark provers than uh, would uh, otherwise be necessary but like it at least kind of works and get a stable gets us the objective and snarking in general is just incredibly valuable for making it easier for people to verify stuff on chain uh, but uh that's something that um, yeah so that's something that's uh really valuable like uh, zk synarks are i think i've said this before in my opinion they're as big a yet and as important to technological block breakthrough as blockchains are and mm, uh, we're wow. going to start seeing them more and more over the course of the of uh, this decade but um you know it's still it uh, would take a while until the technology gets to full maturity so you know fingers crossed and hoping that it just keeps on progressing peacefully and uh, we'll see
1: so that is the roadmap progress graphic and we've we've mm. looked at that kind of lens on what ethereum looks like next what ethereum looks like moving forward. Um there are a few other lenses we might want to put on this this topic and this question Vitalik um before we tie it off. Uh one is the economics, maybe the economics of staking. Um are they now set in stone the econ- the economics of ethereum or are they you know, scheduled to change at some point. What's if change? What sort of changes might you envision? Mm-hmm. That's
0: definitely a good and a very important uh, question. Um, so, changes to the uh, economics of uh, staking that I could see happening. Um, one of them might be that uh, I think there are ways to make the deposit and withdrawal queues faster, at least in the normal case. Um, so things like allow a huge amount of deposits and withdrawals to happen if the uh, chain finalizes so that'll just make the experience for validators easier Um, and uh, that'll also reduce the uh, incentive to participate in stake pools and it'll make it easier to have smaller and more decentralized stake pools for example Um, so that's one then um, number two would be changes to the mev um, architecture would obviously affect the uh, economics of staking like even today the uh, mev yeah, revenue is a, a pretty significant portion of uh, staking uh, revenue right and like there is some economic benefit uh to uh, participating in mev boost but that's uh something that will obviously change a lot and especially if the ethereum protocol includes some form of uh, enshrines proposal builder separation and then if uh, justin gets his way and uh, we also add mev smoothing which is like a an, a change that you know, basically forces mev revenue to get redistributed to all of the uh, validators instead of being concentrated in one of them then that will reduce the variance of uh, staking revenue which um, also reduces the uh, incentive to be part of a stake pool uh, so A lot of uh, little changes uh, like that, I think, uh, are going to happen as a result of uh, some uh, changes to staking that can happen. The system requirements of uh, having a staking node hopefully will uh, decrease over time, especially as things like statelessness come in and probably even more once uh, ZK Snarks come in. Right? Like, I think my longer term dream for Ethereum is basically that all that a staker will have to do is just download and verify a bunch of data, uh, verify once an arc and then uh, sign something. And if, and if that's the case, then like staking on mobile phones is going to be extremely viable, right? Like, it, like even if you have a phone on the go, most likely because, uh, it it will not consume a huge amount of amount of uh, battery. The only thing it will consume a huge amount of is bandwidth, right? But I I think it will take five or ten years to get there. Uh, but
2: uh, you know, I'm hopeful. I think. Uh, and we we also have um, BLS signature aggregation, which can allow us to go from the thirty two ETH stake down to sixteen, maybe down to eight. So like the future yes. sci fi okay. so, version uh, of Ethereum is I'm just like walking around with my phone with eight ether verifying the network. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is, um, this actually gets
0: into one of these, uh, bigger challenges, um, and, uh, like trade offs in the single slot finality roadmap, right? So in the single slot finality roadmap, uh, basically the idea would be that, uh, instead of, uh, some, like, instead of all validators participating over the course of uh, 32 slots, uh, you would have, uh, validators, every validator staking and uh, sending a message uh, during every um, individual slot. And if you do that, then... There's basically two ways to do this, right? One way is uh, what we call super committees, uh, where basically you don't literally have every validator uh, staking in every slot. You have like some subset, but it's a pretty big subset. Like it's about 4 million ETH worth of uh, validators. But then you just rapidly rotate all of the yeah, validators in and out uh, to try to make it fair over like even pretty short time scales. Uh, so that's one approach. And if you take that approach, then it should be very possible to reduce the yeah, minimum ETH deposit size at, at, at the same time. The other approach would be to say, well, you know, we are just going to literally have every validator stake in every slot. And this is something that realistically would... re- yeah, d- um, Um, do some combination of increasing the load on the network and uh, reducing the number of validators that the network can support. Now, one nice thing that it'll be able to do is it'll be able to um, basically remove the need for individual validators to have multiple SWATs, right? Like someone who has 10,000 ETH, they'll be able to just have one slot that's just 10,000 ETH. And there's some yeah. technical reasons why we can't do that today that have to do with like shuffling and committee assignment. But both of those things would go away if we have a uh, single slot finality and if we have uh, uh dank sharding um, or even uh, proto-dank sharding. Um, and so then like basically you'll be able to have um you know validators with like 10 eth alongside validators with uh 10,000 eth. It, so the one uh, nuance though is that we would not be able to like have a hard guarantee of uh 32 eth um being like of it being possible to stake with 32 eth right basically because like we would not be able to know what the distribution of other stakers is right like we'd be able to support a maximum of um, you know maybe about one hundred thirty thousand uh, validators or uh, maybe a bit more, but if it just so happens that everyone who has a lot of ETH still chooses to split their ETH up into um, like thirty two ETH, just uh, you know either because the uh, wealth distribution turns out that way or because like some people just want to be mean and take up more slots, then like unfortunately the minimum stake- staking amount might end up like increasing a little bit higher than the uh, thirty two ETH, right? And that's one of the yeah, risks of uh, that approach but at the same time the benefit of that approach will be a lot more protocol simplicity a lot more security um, the uh, chain would like finalize and uh, you would get up to maximum security after like 32 seconds will be a number that uh, I think uh, could be realistic to hope for um, and yeah like basically the yes yeah, so, so, so you know there would be a, a lot of benefits, but at the same time there would be this cost. But on the other hand, um, you know if you wanted to try to optimize for having some native ability to stake with like one ether for ETH, then we would need to talk about much bigger uh, validator set sizes and uh, bigger uh, like needing to handle a larger number of validators at the same time. Um, but and, and but also having this like super committee mechanism, and then there would be more complexity, and there would be more different kind of kinds of uh, trade offs and yeah so basically you know you either get one really good thing and you sacrifice a bit on the other side or you get a different uh, really good thing but then you sacrifice in other ways Um, if you want a more detailed document that describes uh, this uh, trade-off i think let me just uh, look this up and uh, check uh, check this right now i think it's like paths to um Single slot finality, I think, might be the doc. Yeah. So, if you just search paths towards single slot finality, um, I will uh, actually just uh, here send it uh, send it to you right there. Uh, Then, uh, like we talk about uh, the uh, the two strategies um, in there, the uh, uh, super committees versus uh, global uh, validator set. And I, I try my best to uh, explain to readers what the uh, benefits and, and the uh, disadvantages of uh, each approach are. But I think like because this affects not just the technology, because, but it also affects the economics and it also affects the uh, staker experience, I think it's important for this to be a uh, community-wide discussion. So I would... Uh, Really welcome people to read that document and kind of start, you know, making their own uh, views uh, heard on like what things they value more and what things they value less. And we can keep trying to improve these proposals into something that can, uh, you know, hopefully come close to satisfying
1: everyone. Let's flag that for the Bankless community, Ethereum uh, mm. community, which is uh, we'll include a link in the show notes to the the post past to single slot finality. It sounds like there's going to be a lot of conversation around that in the months mm. ahead as we you know, figure out as a community what to do there. And th- those trade offs are, are are real, Vitalik. It is always mm. difficult to adjust, you know, magic numbers like 32 ETH up. And yet, there seem to be some real benefits to doing that, and there are also benefits in, in terms of decreasing the uh, uh, decreasing the minimum amount to stake as well. But I want to ask you more broadly, from another lens on this. I mean, we've gone through the product roadmap lens from almost like a developer's perspective, the features that need to implement. But I think there mm-hmm. are like maybe three questions in uh, people's minds are three different topics that uh, have come up recently about Ethereum's future. The one is this concern or question over centralization of stake, which we can get to. Another is censorship resistance, which has become a popular topic over the last few months. Uh, And then the third is looming in the background is layer twos and how have they lived up to the hype? Uh, Are they really working? Um, Let's start with the first centralization of stake and the concern here vitalik is coinbase kraken large staking pools they are going to own all of ethereum stake or a majority or you know some number that kind of like breaks the security guarantees of ethereum are you concerned about this and uh what are your thoughts on how the roadmap can um, can mitigate it if you do have concerns
0: yeah um i think it's definitely always a concern um, I do think that the concern is overhyped a bit, right? Like uh, the, the trolls uh, do sometimes, uh, for example, uh, try to kind of sneak in this uh, depiction depiction of uh, Lido as being a single centralized actor. And like I think a lot of people in the Ethereum research team are critical of some aspects of Lido, but I think it's important to like, defend it in the sense that it's definitely not true that Lido is a single centralized actor, right? Like there isn't... It one, um, you know, owner or sysadmin or dev that has the ability to flip the switch and uh, turn all of the you know, idle actors into participants in some kind of attack, right? Like it's a yeah, protocol that uh, distributes a stake between uh, like somewhere between like, is it like 19 or 21 or like some pretty big number of uh, sub validators. We are each of those sub validators only has a few percent of the stake. Uh, so Lido does have some uh, pretty decent uh, decentralization internally um obviously even taking a uh, Lido out then like coinbase plus Kraken plus a bunch of others do uh, add up to quite a bit and uh, it is a, a concern um I think in the short term the good news is that uh, like you know these are, good people and they're people who uh, love ethereum and uh, they do want uh, ethereum to prosper and so i think the risk that they're going to do something terrible in the short term is uh pretty low i mean brian has even been uh willing to say that like he would rather shut down the uh, coinbase uh, staking a service than uh turn it into an engine of censorship right um so uh i mean obviously the look like, that's uh Like those kinds of commitments are commitments that we should hold the ecosystem to, like every single um, centralized staking provider even. Um, But uh, obviously the good intentions of uh, specific people are not something that we want to rely on in the long term because we are about uh, being a decentralized ecosystem. And I think in the longer term, there are some uh, good solutions, right? So one thing to point out is that... uh, like Bitcoin uh, proof of work decentralization and even pre merge Ethereum proof of work decentralization, like they were not, they're not that high either, right? Like I think uh, Bitcoin is uh, controlled by or like more than 50% of it is like two or three mining pools. Um, let's uh, see, I'm going to go up on the uh, internet again and check uh, btc.com stats pool. Foundry USA 23.3 and pool 18, F2 pool 17.1, Binance pool 14.3, Via BTC 9.5. So like three pools control more than half the Bitcoin network and five pools control like 80% of it, right? So. Those are pretty scary numbers. They are no less scary and probably even more scary than uh, Ethereum uh, proof of stake. Now, people do sometimes uh, reply by saying, oh, come on, you can't say that proof of work pools and proof of stake pools are equivalent. Proof of work miners can switch pools at any time, but stakers can't. But the reality is that we're like months away from withdrawals. And withdrawals are going to mean that, you know, yeah, if you're not happy with your staking pool, you absolutely can withdraw and you can immediately redeposit into a different one. Um, There's uh, actually even the possibility to add a feature to the protocol, which is even better than a withdrawal, like basically give stakers the ability to transfer their staking power immediately. Um, Now, the one uh, caveat of that approach is that the yeah, staker would still be vulnerable to being slashed by the old by their previous staking provider for some amount of time, um, right? But uh, aside from like the in terms of the kind of power in the network, like they would be able to, with this kind of feature, they would be able to actually yeah, move it over uh, very quickly, right? So proof of stake absolutely can be upgraded and can be designed to make it possible to. Move stake between uh, different uh, pools and different providers uh, very, and even change your own keys uh, very quickly. Uh, so that's something that will increase practical decentralization quite a bit. Withdrawals being enabled is also something that will uh, practically like really increase the uh, ability to. Um, for people to solo stake because as a solar staker, like you're not going to have this, uh, kind of this liquidity problem. Like you'll be basically have the same ability to withdraw your money quickly that even, uh, or almost like the same ability in the normal case, uh, as uh, a participant in Lido does, right? in an exceptional case where the chain is like under attack or whatever then you know if you if you signed up and you're a staker at the same time as an attack is happening then like you know sorry yes this is what you signed up for and you have to stick around and validate for a couple of weeks but aside from that exceptional situation you know you will be able to just go and leave right so as proof of stake gets upgraded i think uh over time, you know, we are going to keep improving this stuff uh, more and more. And I think uh, proof of stake is going to get pretty close to a uh, system where you will be able to just like start and stop staking whatever you want. And I think uh, people are underestimating the extent to which the very real weaknesses of the uh, current uh, proof-of-stake system are something that's going to stick around for the long term.
1: Vitalik, would you make the claim that like just as soon as proof-of-work was kind of switched off, we fully transitioned to proof-of-stake, that proof-of-stake, even in its current form, with maybe some centralized actor controlling more stake than, than we'd want, is still more decentralized than the former Ethereum proof-of-work network? Would you make that claim? I would say
0: absolutely. Um I, I uh, would say that for a couple of reasons. Um I mean one is um that uh, once you take into account all of the solar stakers and Lido's internal decentralization, I think it's just uh true as a matter of fact that uh, post-merge Ethereum is like better on any reasonable decentralization metric than uh proof of stake Ethereum or or sorry proof of work Ethereum or even a uh, proof of work Bitcoin. The uh, second thing I would say is that Proof of Stake has much better recovery from 51% attacks, right? Because if a 51% attack happens, then, you know, you can uh, socially recover from it. You can partially automate recovering uh, from it. You can do a lot of, uh, there is a lot of recovery options that exist that just don't exist at all in uh, Proof of Work, right? In Proof of Work, like if uh, half of uh, the miners start attacking, you're pretty much screwed, right? Like, there's this argument that like, oh, you know, the, the good guys are gonna all come together and they're gonna offer hundreds of millions of dollars of, uh, like capital and try to like start, like, bringing the chain back toward the good guys. But like, come on, you know, it's, uh, like, just, why would you even make a system that relies on that when you can make a system where if an attack happens, you can just delete the bad guys' uh, stake and keep going, right? It's, it, like just the practical ability of uh, doing it, I think is uh, just uh, much stronger. So the uh, you know, if a fifty-one percent attack a stake attack starts, like the amount of actual lock-in that it has is much lower.
1: What's always interesting to me about like popular crypto narratives is. Um... You know, you always have to look at them from first principles and kind of think rationally about them, because as as a matter of fact, it does seem like people were not complaining about how centralized proof of work Ethereum was in mining pools, et cetera, in, in similar form to, to Bitcoin. And yet Ethereum through proof of stake has become more decentralized. And now people are complaining about it. And that's not to say that Ethereum doesn't have a ways to go and needs to work on this problem. I think it absolutely does. But if you just look at the upgrade that just happened, you'd think that Ethereum just became kind of a you know, a centralized, um, uh, you know, controlled uh, apparatus of the WEF in the state. <laughs> with, like, with the transition, that has not happened. Um, but can we talk about a, a second maybe looming threat, which is people are wondering about censorship resistance. What about mm. censorship resistance? Is that still a problem Ethereum needs to solve? I think censorship resistance
0: is um, absolutely an important issue, and I think there is absolutely a uh, risk that we should be worrying about that, like particularly with the switch to um, like MEV boost uh, type architecture, where people validators are going to be outsourcing responsibility for uh, which blocks to produce. Uh, that. Uh, Basically, we're going to enter a world where almost all blocks get produced by a couple of centralized actors and those centralized actors end up censoring. Um, So this is something that has been talked a lot about internally, both in the Ethereum research community and in the Flashbots and MEV community. And the good news is that there are a lot of uh, mitigations, right? So one of the lo- mitigations is this uh, concept of uh, transaction inclusion lists, uh, aka CR lists, which are allow validators to say, Hey, I'm going to outsource responsibility for creating a block, but whoever does it has to include this, uh, this set of transactions, right? And so you as a validator, if you identify transactions that are being censored, you can add them to an inclusion list and, uh, like they just are going to be yeah, included in uh, whatever block you accept. There is even a version of this where the validator adds their transactions to the end um, after the yeah, builder has already submitted their block, right? Uh, so basically giving the yeah, validator extra freedom to add whatever they want to the end of a, uh, of a builder's block. So the builder doesn't even have to realize that there's like particular transactions that the validator is intent on adding in the same slot um there's uh all the longer term stuff around decentralized builders and sgx builders and um MPC and snark builders and all of these uh different concepts uh so basically a lot there's a lot of these different ideas that try to look like, bring back more autonomy uh, to the validator and make sure that the validator still has control and, and the ability to force uh, transactions that they saw to be included, despite builders having control over transaction ordering. Uh, so that's one major mitigation. Um, another major mitigation I think is just ensuring that the builder and real markets are as competitive as possible. And that's something that I think we've seen a lot of uh, good work on over the last uh, couple of months. Right like there are also the blocks route builders there is a couple of other builders there is a couple of other relayers uh, that are involved um i think uh, there is some dash uh, dashboard somewhere let me yes yeah, see if i can find it again um i forget might it be yeah, uh, MEVboost.org has uh has one if you look at top relayers and uh top builders uh so the yeah, flashbots relay is uh making 81 percent of the MeV boost blocks but then uh, blocks route ma- uh, Max profit is uh making more than half of the remaining ones and then uh, blocks r- followed by blocks throughout ethical followed by blocks route regulated uh, and then block native manifold and even are
1: still uh Managing to make blocks uh, at least once an hour. So Vitalik, uh, so, like D- mm-hmm. Dave and I run our uh, own nodes via rocket mm-hmm. pool And it's been really interesting because like you ha- you have to pick your relay and your block builder, right of this list Basically, these are some mm-hmm. options and there's an interesting like question. is like blocks route regulated is like O-fla- OFAC compliant um, your version of a, a builder in a relay and blocks mm-hmm. route max profit is not for example. Mm. And so the individual validator chooses. Now, are, are mm-hmm. some of these decisions going to be like enshrined in protocol so that a builder or relayer cannot choose to be kind of like OFAC compliant mm. or something like this? Because wh- wh- what happens is it does seem to present a, a choice uh, to the validators. Do you want to do the blocks throughout mm-hmm. regulated or do you want to do the blocks throughout max profit, like OFAC compliant mm. or not? And if you're Brian Armstrong or a Coinbase, and you're under some regulatory pressure, I'm betting you're going to pick the regulated option. Does this get solved in protocol in some way? Good question.
0: Um, so first of all, I think uh, the concept of relayers is going to go away when uh, we have uh, in protocol PBS, right? This is uh I think something that's uh, really important, right? So relays are this thing that's like very public and they have like these publicly available names and you have to consciously choose them uh, because relays relays are this trust demanding role where if you as a validator sign up to a relay that's cheating, then that relay can do a whole bunch of nasty things to uh, steal money from you or uh, cause you to lose money. Uh, within protocol PBS, that trust uh, component is going to go away right and so relays are uh are going to go away and the only thing that'll be around will be builders uh so builders i mean even today the yeah, builders uh they are just like zero access something and they don't really have uh, public identities right i mean obviously you are going to be able to uh discover the public identities of uh, some of the builders and uh you know you will There may be some validators that will decide to refuse to accept blocks from uh, some of the builders, but otherwise, the market of uh, builders is uh, already looking more quite a bit more competitive than the market for relays. Relays, and hopefully, the market for builders is going to get even more competitive. Right, like any competitive builder market, the uh, level of uh, the amount the amount of room that even winning builders have to censor is actually very small because if they start censoring more than a tiny amount, then that decreases the maximum bids that they can afford to make. And so if you censor more than a tiny amount, even as a winning builder, then uh, you will just naturally start producing lower bids than some of the uh, non-censoring builders. And so uh, validators would just automatically start uh, choosing blocks from the non-censoring builders just because the bids that they offer are gonna be higher. Um, So, with relayers as this kind of unfortunately centralized uh, trust-providing function removed, I think uh, a lot of the problem is going to go away.
1: That's good to hear. All right, let's get to the the last lens of Ethereum problems that need to be solved. and This is one that was already underway pre-merge, but maybe uh, with proto-dank sharding 4844. Uh, it gets kind of accelerated, and that is the roll-up centric roadmap. And I, I just want to ask you a question about um, L2 progress and in general. Uh, have L2s so far, Layer 2s that is, have they lived up to, your, to the hype? Have they lived up to maybe even your hopes? I think my answer is mixed.
0: Um, I think... Uh... They've, uh, they have done a lot in like actually having a, uh, like, uh, thriving ecosystems around them and, uh, better and better ability to bridge between them, starting to add some of the uh, ideas around compression. Uh, the, uh, L2s, uh, the ZK EVMs have, uh, amazed me. You know, they've, uh, gotten, to, uh, um, the, uh, Point of uh, where they are like, much uh, faster than uh, I was expecting that they would. So you know, there's just incredibly smart people that have been uh, doing incredibly good work there. Um, the one thing that's probably happened slower than I expected uh, by uh, quite a bit is uh, work on fraud proofs, right? Like uh, both Optimism and Arbitrum, like they haven't uh, taken off uh, the training wheels yet, and from uh, what I understand, right? And uh, it's even in some cases looking like it's going to be quite a while until the training wheels come off, right? And so this even makes me wonder like if this is the case and like if it turns out that making a good fraud proof is like actually almost as hard as making a good ZkVM, then uh, are we even going to see this like leapfrog situation where some of these optimistic rollups are just gonna, at some point, move straight to ZK even before the training wheels uh, fully come off on the uh, optimistic rollup. I mean, if so, then that would obviously be a really fascinating outcome. Um, but, uh, you know, at the same time, then, uh, that's obviously a huge win for like ZK rollups as a concept, um, over optimistic
2: rollups as a concept. Uh, but, you know, we'll see. So Vitalik, we've done a, a good job summarizing uh, the Ethereum roadmap, talking about the post-merge world, and and also the the things that have been in conversation lately, censorship Resistance, layer twos, uh, and stake centralization of stake, of course. And this really, I think, does a good job summarizing the last two years of Ethereum, I think. Mm-hmm. There was the era of proof of stake and shipping the beacon chain. That was like 2020 to where we are now in September of 2022. What do you hope that the era of 2023 to 2024 is for Ethereum. What, what should the developers be focusing on? What should the paradigm of development be? And mm-hmm. also what role should the community have? Uh, people that are not technical, people like me and Ryan and uh, the content creators and the content consumers and just the generalized Ethereum community, mm-hmm. what role do they have over the next couple of years?
0: Sure. So I think there's uh, two big priorities. One of the priorities is to get scaling figured out. And I mean that at all layers of the ecosystem, like getting the Ethereum protocol uh, fully roll up ready, which includes things like proto sharding, getting roll ups themselves to be fully ready for users, getting applications on top of them, getting good bridge infrastructure between them, getting all the wallets to support them, like just helping the uh, transition to a fully roll up uh, centric Ethereum complete. And then The uh, other one is a uh, transition from Ethereum being in rapid developing firefighting mode to Ethereum being in stability mode. I think it's uh, a transition that has to happen. And uh, I I do think that to some extent it's uh, an inevitable transition because as the ecosystem grows, the cost of changing things increases and then there start being all these regulatory uh, concerns and... uh, lots of existing stakeholders. And so there is this kind of narrow window to get a lot of uh, important uh, changes through. But at the same time, like the uh, ecosystem really needs to get out of this kind of firefighting, like, you know, hey, the community is yelling at us to get something now, now, now. Um, And so like, you know, let's make a totally stripped down pragmatic version of it and ship it uh, mode into a mode of like much more deeply caring about making sure that every single step that the uh, as roadmap uh, takes is on the path towards some kind of more stable uh, form of uh, a long-term uh, roadmap that uh, leads toward uh, sustainability. Um, and... Aside from those two, there's obviously some like smaller items like, uh, you know, the, the verge, the purge and the splurge, um, account abstraction, uh, ZK snarking things, continuing to improve proof of stake. Uh, but, uh, those are kind of separate. They're also kind of a, uh, I mean, they're, they're kind of the same thing, right? There are protocol changes and in a lot of cases that are geared more toward, uh, long term sustainability than toward, uh, like putting out fires that exist today. Um, but, uh, you know, they uh, they need to happen and, uh, you know, they will happen. And we, we can just kind of be fairly calm and careful about it. Uh, make sure not to put too much uh, strain on the development teams, both because that'll cause them to burn out and uh, because uh, we don't want it to, like, become, not become possible to create a uh, client, uh, be, a new client at some point in the future because there's so much work to do. Um, so, yeah, I know those are the goals as I see them.
2: Hmm. So I, I think what, what you're saying is, and what I'm also seeing is the era of when merge is over, but also more broadly, the era of when is over. And I think that's because mm-hmm. like, you know, communities, the masses, they like they like the token stuff, they like the prices. And the merge was fundamentally from the community standpoint about reducing the ETH issuance. So that's mm-hmm. going to be the thing that impacts the thing that they obviously care about the most which is ether and now that's in the mm-hmm. rear view mirror like when merge like we already did it uh so they're like when charting doesn't really have the same ring to it uh i don't really see as many people going when charting when charting not so with that, gas prices this low david yeah not with gas prices well that's a good point but i think vitalik what you're saying is that um like the whole when, when, when part of the Ethereum communities in, in the rear view mirror. And now that we've shipped proof of stake, if we shipped a good version of it, it's working well. And now these, the, meta of Ethereum developers can be a little bit more relaxed and intentional as to mm-hmm. what actually, and, per, and, and maybe even more of a perfectionist as to what actually does get shipped on chain. And so we can make sure that we get 4844 absolutely perfect. We can make sure we get PBS absolutely perfect because we are in a slower and, and more intentional uh, paradigm of Ethereum development. Would you relate and resonate with these statements? I would say so. I'd say that's a very good summary. Beautiful.
1: Well, as we move from kind of the uh, the technical layer, I want to talk about uh, maybe a bit more of the social layer and mm-hmm. um, you know, moving from engineering to uh, some of the softer sciences like, like philosophy and maybe uh, political science here. And I, I think one question that um, we're left with Ethereum is, okay, what is this thing that we have built so far? Uh, there is this notion, and I know you're familiar with it, um, of the network stake, the network state rather. Uh, and this mm-hmm. is a concept most recently put forward by um, Balaji. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was on the podcast as well recently. And um, we asked Balaji, who's been a long time in, in crypto, of course, from the very beginnings, uh, do you think that the, the network state is kind of the, the main thing That the crypto Mm. project is focused on and his answer was yes absolutely that's what we are doing money Mm. is just a subset of the network state i'm curious your perspective on this vitalik and i know you have thoughts but let's talk about um ethereum uh Mm -hmm. first do you Mm -hmm. think ethereum is an example of a belagian network state or a network state of you know some some other uh conceptual framework I would say no, um,
0: and uh, I mean I would like I think uh, Ethereum has a uh, very important role to play in network states, but I would say uh, Ethereum is like a bit of a uh, higher layer thing, and uh, the reason why I would say that is that at this point the uh, Ethereum community has grown very very big, very diverse, very pluralist in a lot of ways. And one of the things that that means that it uh, sacrifices is definitely an assumption of uh, alignment on a lot of like issues that people really care about, especially on non-crypto related topics, right? Like I think uh, if you look at, you know, even Bitcoin 10, 10 years ago and or like even Ethereum 8 years ago and you asked like uh, a question of uh, like, what do you think the right federal minimum wage is? Or like, what's your view on how healthcare should be provided? Or, you know, what's uh, your perspective on immigration? Or, um, you know, who's right in some like g- geopolitical situation? You know, like 10 years ago, you would have gotten a lot more alignment. And I think these days, uh, you're going to get less alignment on uh, those kinds of issues. And I think that's... Uh, an inevitable part of the uh, ecosystem growing. And it's also a healthy thing, right? Like uh, Glenn uh, loves to use the phrase like facilitating cooperation across difference. And uh, to me, facilitating cooperation across uh, difference is definitely uh, part of uh, what both um, blockchains and a lot of the uh, equipment on uh, blockchains is uh, gonna be about um one uh, probably just a very concrete example just to kind of uh dive like very briefly into the weeds before we dive back out of uh, what I'm talking about is the whole ENS Brantley situation, right like that was uh, something where people, Within the Ethereum ecosystem who are passionate Ethereans and who have .eth names, you know, they did have uh, very uh, different perspectives on that situation that they uh, care deeply about. And I think it's a testament to the Ethereum ecosystem and even to ENS itself that uh, we were able to navigate that and even navigate like pretty close to a 50-50 split, I think, in the yeah, ENS DAO's decision of like whether or not uh, Brantley should be fired, right? Uh, without, uh, that really turning into like a big schism that that breaks Ethereum um, all together. Um, but and to
1: refresh people with with mm-hmm. the Brantley situation, Brantley had some uh, controversial comments. Uh, what mm. was it at the time that uh, you know a subset of the Ethereum community disagreed vehemently with? Uh, mm. And yeah, any other any other light on that for for folks that weren't familiar with the current event as it happened in Ethereum world. Yeah, I mean, like he basically has kind of
0: traditional uh, religious uh, views on uh, topics like uh, you know homosexuality and, uh, and st- like th- those kinds of topics that are like I mean d- definitely extremely out of step with uh, you know especially people who have a more left left-lean- uh, left leaning ethos. Um, and what but- was the what was the outcome? So the outcome was that there were a lot of calls to uh, basically fire Brantley or you know cancel him uh, for various meanings of that term. And I think he did end up getting pushed out of True Names Ltd., the company, but there was a vote to try to push him out of the ENS DAO, and I think that vote ended up failing. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, Brantley is part of Ethereum lands, and there are people in some uh, kind of sub-islands of Ethereum who uh, do not really interact with him or wants to interact with him and then there are some people who do, right? And uh,
2: so he, so he did, uh, he did, um, you're, you're right in that he did not get kicked out of the DAO or did he did not lose a lot of his like delegation, but he did kind of be removed socially. He had much less presence on Twitter. Uh, mm-hmm. People listened to him a lot less. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so while the formal DAO did not remove his power, he did like kind of socially take a few, get like knock down a few rungs, if you will. Mm-hmm. So there was some sort of like hybrid outcome to this absolutely yeah um
0: and uh, i mean the uh the, the crypto space i think has uh you know obviously yeah uh, continues to intersect with uh, geopolitics more and more the other big example of that it was um, obviously the whole uh, ukraine uh, situation uh, this year and uh, there i think uh, I mean, i'm like i personally am not aware of like ethereum community i actually no know maybe yeah Maybe within the Aragon team, which is uh, Russian, um, there's uh, definitely yeah, more people who have like takes that uh, vehemently yeah, disagree with uh, my position, and I mean I guess uh, your your position on that issue, um, but uh, and there has been some uh, even uh, Twitter drama on that, um, but you know, more and more of these uh, do crop up, and more and more of these will crop up. But I guess my view there is that. Uh, you know, like I have uh, uh, views on each one of these issues, and we have uh, views on each one of these issues, and I don't think that like our role as participants in the Ethereum ecosystem should uh, cause us to shy away from expressing our views on uh,
1: on some of those topics, because I mean, you know those topics are very important. I think some of what you're saying, Vitalik, is that Ethereum is is almost like uh, too credibly neutral to become a Blagian network state. Like it doesn't have right. strong enough opinions. It's kind of like asking mm-hmm. the internet to become a network mm-hmm. state. Well what is the internet? It's yeah. a whole bunch of mm-hmm. tribes coming together to to interact. So but 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 maybe so if, if Ethereum itself is not a, a a network state and can't become one. It doesn't have a, a social fabric that has enough um, you know coherence, I, I suppose, around a particular set of values, other mm-hmm. than being decentralized and being credibly neutral itself, uh then is Ethereum a substrate for mm. spawning other network states on top of? I think absolutely. Um, and um, I think uh, Ethereum, like it,
0: it absolutely is still a uh, both a substrate and a home for a lot of uh, different sub-communities that do have these uh, much more uh, detailed and uh, opinionated visions of uh, the uh, kind of uh, world that they want to see. And, like, I do think that Ethereum to some extent does sort of structurally have uh, some opinions in the sense of, like, if you're a person that really does believe in the the World Economic Forum vision of a cashless society, then, like, there's just much less for you that Ethereum can offer, right? So I do think that, you know, there is some extent to which Ethereum as a thing has uh, values baked into it, and there are values that are shared by, like, that are much more shared by the yeah, ethereum community than by the yeah, world as a whole right um but uh, the i think the the right level to try to make some of these more opinionated visions come to life is by yeah, things like sub communities that are close to ethereum and that are even proud of their alignments with ethereum but they do sort of recognize their distinction from ethereum itself and this, so that do sort of both give permission to people for for people to still be Ethereans, but at the same time, not not want not liking uh, their vision, uh, and, and uh, also by doing so, uh, kind of give themselves the freedom to like really have these like, like stronger moral commitments uh, without um, you know fear of kind of offending people by uh, speaking for Ethereum as a whole, right? So, like, I would love to see um, multiple ethereum uh, n- network states um i would uh i i think uh w- w- within the network state concept like there is a lot of room for the uh um like some kind of concept of uh Kind of coordinating layers between uh network states in general right like I I do think that uh, once there are multiple network states there are going to have some co- they are going to have some common interests uh, that just have to do with uh, the fact that, they, that that they're all network states um, I think uh, there might even be value in co-locating uh, some some of them uh, beside each other for example um so that you know they can interact with each other but without literally being part of the exact same turf and uh You know the sort of the high levels of alignment that come out of something like that, Um, and I think Ethereum is and can be part of the alignment layer, but there is probably also room for other kinds of alignment layers between the different uh, network states as well. Uh, So yeah, I mean, it it it'll be interesting. I think um, you know we'll see how that whole uh, vision is uh, going to evolve. I mean, I think. just basically saying, like, saying that uh, network states are something that should be free to be more opinionated is uh, something that's uh, probably even going to just create a better world because we'll get more like, more interesting uh, visions that uh, we'll try to use the concepts
2: to be able to do more. When we when we talk about the World Economic Forum and Ethereum, we're comparing like the value systems of these two like poles, right? Uh, but I I think it's fair to say that the World Economic Forum is very like opinionated and it's very like political and Ethereum is designed to be this credibly neutral platform. And I think perhaps it's a fair take to say that the reason why we can't really find much room on Ethereum for the World Economic Forum is due to that difference, right? Like, we can't really find a way to include the WEF's values on our our credibly neutral social settlement layer. There's just, like, not room for them to to appear. And so when we talk about other network states or other political systems that do find good ways to inhabit space on Ethereum, and maybe there's more than one, maybe there's a number of them, that's... That's true. They are, are able to do that because they are more aligned with the value, values found in Ethereum or they fit inside of it a little bit better. And so Ethereum as a system of supporting many, many network states does come to actually like proliferate its values upon the world by supporting many, many other network states that fit on top of Ethereum, that fit well inside of Ethereum's structure. And so Ethereum kind of becomes like the meta structure that allows for many, many network states to proliferate. And I think what you were saying with like uh, co-locating network states, maybe both in physical territory, but also two, two network states that are just like very similar are also going to be able to cooperate with each other, work well together and grow stronger because of that cooperation. And so I'm wondering if like, where if you see this kind of like trajectory for things and network states being built on Ethereum, where if we're we're going to get a proliferation of many, many network states, some of them are gonna be able to fit better than others and the ones Mm -hmm. that fit better than others are able to adapt with each other better than others. And then this is kind of the snowball that carries us into this Bellagian network state future that I think he is very, very hopeful for. Is that a Mm -hmm. fair uh, take for the future? I'd say so. Yeah. I mean, I think it's,
0: uh, I mean, it's definitely true that, uh, some ideologies fit better into both, uh, Ethereum, uh, Ethereum and the uh, network state world, uh, than, uh, others. I mean, the World Economic Forum is an interesting case, right? Because like there is the World Economic Forum as an actual thing. And then there's the World Economic Forum as like the thing that Twitter trolls mythologize it into. And right. I, yeah, uh, I mean, I I get I always get the feeling that uh, like I I haven't been to the the forum myself, but you know I get talks to like people who have uh, participated in it and like and um you know there are very diverse people and there's definitely people that like. Just wants to create infrastructure for schools in developing countries, Um, but so you know it is a forum, and ultimately a forum like internet forums are like places where discussion happens. But at the same time, forums like the uh, our Bitcoin forum, yeah, you know they do tend to like uh, skew toward particular ideologies as well. So we always, you know, there's there's always a balance uh, between those uh, two tendencies, and uh, I mean I think there's definitely yeah. the some aspect like the the concept of globalism right like that that that's an interesting one like uh, i don't know if you saw there was that uh, twitter poll i made where i basically asked people how they uh, identify me and one of the questions was am i a globalist and do you like globalism and uh, <laughs> there were people who said they like globalism and i'm a globalist and there's people who say they don't like globalism and i'm not a globalist hmm. and this is because there's like actually Two different meanings of the term globalism. Like, one is this sort of, uh, you know, cosmopolitan vibe of like, someone has the same moral value, whether they're from the United States or Canada or Uganda. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to be open to treating any of those people as my brother. Um, and then there is globalism as in one world government. And, uh, like, I'm obviously a fan of the first and not a fan of the second. And I think a lot of people are fans of the first and not fans of the yeah, second, but they, uh, Still, um like they just disagree on the semantic question of uh, which one of those two the world glo- the word globalist uh, belongs to, and you know even within the world the World Economic Forum, I think there's uh, definitely people who are very ideologically inclined toward the second, but then there's uh, I think also people who are much more inclined uh, toward the first and don't care about the second. And I think as a yeah, a kind of global, um, you know, you could call it sort of alternative liberal and you know, with uh, you using the word liberal in the lowercase sense um, movement, uh, there's an opportunity to try to like really split those two and to like basically show people that like some notion of a global brotherhood, you know, it doesn't actually require global political centralization, but, uh, you yeah, uh. this is... I,
1: I think these are all fascinating things, and like obviously, um, why why even let's so, the social science side of of this crypto movement is maybe in some ways more interesting than the the technology side. But you know, you're talking about the semantics of words words like uh, globalism and how that's changed. I also think the s- semantics uh, behind words in crypto have changed. So, um, take the word DAO. That used mm. to mean something different than what it means today. And I would even say uh, a year ago, it meant something different than it does today. Uh, you wrote a post uh, which I uh, read yesterday I was, I was quite fascinated with, and the title of that post was, "DAOs are not corporations. And I think you were responding to a, a new kind of um, concept or, I guess, um, thing that's been in vogue. Recently, which is the idea that all DAOs that we have on Ethereum and other crypto networks um, should get their shit together a bit more, should get a bit more organized, should nail down a structure, uh, and should start to resemble more corporate governance. I think you push back on that claim, and you think that some DAOs maybe are fit for corporate governance, but others are should be more public, should be more. Inspired by the political scientists uh, and the political science uh, that we have, um, and, and maybe that's the lens of Ethereum. We'll, we'll start there. Back to what is this thing called Ethereum? Is Ethereum a DAO? And like, what actually are DAOs? Should they be managed corporately, or are there new governance systems that we're unlocking here? Mm.
0: It's a good question. Um, I mean, I think we haven't really even fully defined the term DAO as uh, some of the examples in that post uh, go into, right? Like uh, there's this sort of... Vague notion among a lot of people that a DAO still should be this kind of logically centralized singleton where um, money goes into one place and there's a global vote on every funding decision, and that's clearly just a bad model, and it's uh, a model that probably doesn't even give people what they want out of DAOs. And then there's this alternative architecture that's uh kind of inspired by uh, what Ukraine DAO is uh, doing, where you have the core that makes uh, these uh, decisions, but then you have pods, and pods have a uh, a much higher level of autonomy and that seems like something that actually like gives people more of what they want out of uh, decentralization so and like obviously ukraine DAO was not the only one like there was also vita DAO, uh, which was uh Doing a uh, life extension research, there's uh, all of the various uh, DAOs that are trying to like r- run uh, long term pieces of infrastructure. So uh, you know Reflexer for Rye Maker for Maker DAO, Claros, uh, uh, then Optimism Retrofunding Funding, and all of these things. Uh, so I hope that we're going to learn a lot from these examples. I hope that a couple of years from now we're going to have like some much better models of uh, what a good DAO looks like and. Uh, you know, once we once we yeah, learn from them, then you know, would the yeah, Ethereum Foundation be able to become a DAO based on that kind of model? You know, we'll see. Um, I guess that 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 was one of those things that's also been a yeah dream from uh, close to the beginning. Um, and then, you know, optimism. Uh, obviously, yeah, very uh, DAO controlled. Like, what other DAOs we're going to see within the Ethereum ecosystem? I and mean, we'll see. It'll be interesting. Why
1: why 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 don't DAOs just all operate with a corporate? Governance structure. I mean, there is the argument, Vitalik, that we have baked out corporate governance over the last, you know, 200 years. Uh, we've made it pretty efficient. There's a, a CEO. There's an executive team. There's a board of advisors. There are these governors that that keep them in check. These are called shareholders, and it works pretty well. Like um, all of the the products that we experience in our in our modern world were brought to you by corporation right Mm -hmm. uh somebody on the s p 500 went and created this and so these these joint stock ownership companies the corporate structure works pretty well isn't a dow just trying to mirror that or is there something different here that's a good question um i think uh there's two arguments that i have against uh,
0: that line of thinking right Well, one of those, well, I mean, actually three arguments right in the the post, like one of them is that some things require censorship resistance, and uh, corporations are not good at censorship resistance. Another one is that corporations are good at building products, but they're less good at providing infrastructure, right? So like, for example... Social media companies have uh, completely failed at uh, pr- satisfying uh, people's uh, desire for some notion that, like the the uh, content decisions that they're making, are fair, right? And that, and that's the sort of thing that DAOs might actually be better at than uh, traditional corp- forms of uh, corporate governance. And then a yeah, third one is this, uh, the fact that like, well, actually corporations are designed around the yeah, idea that they're second order organizations and they can appeal to uh, first order courts uh, when uh, something goes wrong, right? Like uh, the, um, like you can 51% attack a uh, company, right? And uh, like potentially 51% of the shareholders could try to vote to uh, kick out the other 49%, but that is explicitly illegal. And the uh, mechanism that enforces that is itself a... Uh, uh, you know, the, ultimately, the yeah, government that uh, enforces shareholder laws, right? Uh, and so, if we're going to build a DAO, then, then the DAO has to include all all of that functionality that's normally provided by nation states by itself. And uh, you know, corporate governance is not good at doing that, but political science, so like that's exactly the sort of stuff that it studies.
1: Yeah, that's uh, it's definitely fascinating to see how that evolves. Um... Maybe let's switch back to Ethereum for a minute and and kind of the the end game. I guess if, if, you know, using as simple words as possible, Vitalik, how would you describe Ethereum's end state? Like at the end of this long roadmap, the theme of this episode, I think, has been what's next. At the end of all of these things that we've talked about so far of what's next, what does Ethereum look like and what does it deliver for the world? Hmm.
0: I think, well, Ethereum's uh, ethos uh, from the beginning, right, I think has been to insist on uh, a few particular values, but otherwise not have its own picture of like what specific things it uh, brings to the world, but uh, leave that up to the uh, ecosystem and uh, lots of uh, different groups to uh, create their own vision. Um, And I think... uh, just having a well-functioning global cryptocurrency is a huge amount of value by itself. Like it's especially valuable to people outside of the first world. and you know in places like Latin America, Africa, Eastern Europe and other you know, Central Asia and other places that have a harder time with the existing financial system. Um, Ethereum being the yeah, substrate for DAOs that and like uh, mechanisms that do other things. Uh, so identity is uh, one of the biggest examples. Like, can we create some kind of more decentralized model of identity, and uh, really, uh, you know, start with. Uh, what some of the tools that the Ethereum ecosystem has already, whether it's, uh, you know, accounts and uh, hopefully soon social recovery wallets and ENS and like things like popes and like try to really uh, optimize that and uh, do what we can to build it into something that's like really good at providing what people want out of an uh, identity system. Um, like, what would it even? Uh, being a base layer for DAOs in general, like uh, I mean, network states are. I mean, we yeah, just talked about those for ten or fifteen minutes, but like, what would it actually mean for Ethereum to be a base layer for things like that? Um, things like proof of humanity um, would would be yeah, would have, uh have always been uh, one of my favorite uh, applications. Um, other kinds of uh, censorship uh, resistant applications, Um, other kinds of like credibly neutral and decentralized applications like, uh, you know, could we actually do the whole blockchain based uh, social media thing and uh, try to create social media platforms that are like more credibly neutral and fair in some way. Uh, so, well, like, I don't think there is one vision for what Ethereum could do. I think there's uh, many different visions, and I think uh, once Ethereum manages to solve its uh, scaling problems, it's going to be in a yeah, much better place to uh, help uh, be the substrate that allows all of those visions to happen.
1: I love that part of the answer to the question of what's next for Ethereum is like question mark. We don't actually know it's up, it's up what's to on you. the other side. It's like a two-zero adventure. Um, Vitalik, yeah. before we uh, close this out, finally. Uh, Danny Ryan came on the podcast earlier this week, and uh, he told us that you had some thoughts on AI, artificial intelligence. That is, um, Vitalik, do you have any hot takes on AI? Like, are you worried about? Since we're on the topic of what's yeah. next, <laughs> mm. are you worried about AI in society? Is like, are AIs an existential threat to humanity? Do you see any intersection with crypto? Give us any hot
2: takes. Yeah, well, the what I really want to know, actually, out of this is like. AIs are not going to have bank accounts, but AIs can totally manage private keys. Mm -hmm. And so, like, what intersection does this? Did we just create
1: a substrate for AIs to gain control over the human race, and it's over now? Yeah. So when I was uh,
0: visiting the Bay Area, like as uh, part of my uh, trip to SBC, I uh, also visited and uh, talked to a bunch of various AI people, like people from Anthropic and OpenAI and uh, some of the uh, big. Um, you know, AI firms and just general AI boosters in the space. And I was surprised by the fast timelines that a lot of them have, right? Like uh, going in, I think my timelines were more that, you know, we're going to get like the something like the singularity um by, yeah, you know, sometime around 2075. And when I gave this a number to people, they're like, oh, wow, you're crazy. How can you possibly think AI is going to be that slow? And wow, like, a lot of them are literally expecting human level AI, uh, before the end of this decade. And, um, you know, the singularity, yeah. Within a decade after that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, th- these are obviously inside views and my yeah, default instinct is to be yeah, skeptical, but, uh, m- you know, like I think it's important to ask the question of, uh, like, well, what if they're right? And, uh, you know, what if over the next decade or two, AI basically ends up eating the world? And then the question that we have to think about is like, what is the role that crypto has to play in in an AI dominated world, right? Like, uh, you know, are structures that uh, kind of insist on the idea that like humans are the only kind of significant actor in the space like are those going to survive a uh, an ai transition like what would uh, an ai even look like would uh, could crypto be a part of uh, like somehow democratically governing the ais that come out would uh, crypto be a something that could help, um, you know, coordinate like some alternative, uh, you know, AI uh, uh, projects so that the whole AI uh, transition doesn't lead to just massive centralization in uh, one or two companies. I mean, I don't know, uh, but uh, I think it's uh, important for anyone to be yeah, thinking about the future of uh, crypto as a space to also, be, yeah, like, also have the question in mind of, you uh, in you know, how does AI play into this and like, what would a merger of, uh, well, not a mer- no merger, but like, what would the interplay between uh, crypto and AI look like? I don't yet perfectly know the answer to this question, but I just think it's a, a really important question that we need to be uh, very serious and thinking about.
1: Do you have any thoughts on like um, AI ethics and making sure that we embed You know, human oriented ethics into AI Mm -hmm. is very early so that we don't get an advanced general intelligence that kind of runs away from us. I mean, Nick Bolstrom has talked about this in his books, Elon Musk and Mm. and others wondering if you've looked at that angle of things. It's a very good question. Um, so
0: actually the yeah, people in the Bay Area that have uh, fast timelines, they're also more optimistic about AI safety and, and AI alignment than they have been before. Um, the way to explain like the, the reason why is because a lot of the like very doom and gloomy uh, AI alignment theory, like it basically implicitly assumed that AIs would be grown by base by essentially playing real time strategy games against each other, right? Like if you think of how something like Alpha Zero was grown, right? It just, uh, you know, it's able to learn to play a game by yeah, playing against itself uh, billions of times, and uh, then it just becomes really good at Go. And you just like f- take that model and you translate it to optimizing at manipulating the natural world as a whole. And with that kind of a uh, uh, growth uh, path, like it's easy to see why that AI would be totally um, just un, uh, unaware of uh, and not able to be aligned with human values, right? Because uh, the AI uh, grew and uh, developed its patterns of thinking without any interaction with humans. The AI's path to, be, to becoming intelligent was not would not even be the same path that humans took. Where um, you know, there's this uh, complicated uh, interplay of uh, cooperation and uh, competition, and there's even a big argument to be made that human intelligence basically evolved as a result of uh, human humans having to play political games against each other, right? And uh, AIs would just be in a completely different concept, and so, or or they would be born and raised in a completely different way, right? And so maybe the whole, like, would the AI just turn the universe into paperclips to be able to calculate a little faster thing here is like a really excellent question to ask. But the AIs that we're seeing today, they're AIs that are grown by basically learning patterns of human behavior and, uh, it's, att- it's att- basically, yeah, uh, repeatedly attempting to m- pattern match the situation that they're in to the human behavior that's been, uh, repeated the greatest number of times in a context that's similar to that pattern. And so, The AIs that emerge out of that kind of uh, learning process just are going to be AIs that are sort of more naturally human uh, by default. It also means that we're going to have slower takeoff because uh, like, there is a natural divide between being able to get to human level intelligence and surpassing it uh, because uh, human level intelligence like you can get to human level intelligence if you're just a really good pattern matching engine that learns from all the humans but uh moving beyond human level intelligence requires you to like actually uh come up with things yourself uh, so it's still like a st- it's still a step higher basically right uh so we have more time the yeah, ais are more likely to be human like uh we're more likely to see multiple ais instead of one single ai dominating everything uh, so all of those things paint a yeah, more optimistic picture. And also there, the work that's been happening in AI alignment now, like it's less theoretical and it's more practical. Like it's trying to say, how do we take the AIs that we're building today? And uh, how do we try to make them be as aligned as possible? And that's a path that seems to be like, slowly starting to make more headway. Uh, so I'm, uh, I mean, obviously we still have very big problems. Um, I think, uh, very big problems from the yeah, risk of um, you know the AIs that take over being unaligned, and I would say also a uh, political centralization risk from, like. Bad versions of AI alignment theory being used to justify an idea that AI risk means that AIs have to be, um, you know, in a lab where only a couple of uh, large corporations run by sort of self-appointed ethical high priests uh, should be the only ones that have that uh, that have um, access to the capabilities. And uh, you know, base if people who design, who build the yeah, most powerful AIs end up having uh, that kind of mindset, then like. What would that mean for the political structure of the world? That's kind of like a a secondary uh, AI risk that I think is uh, also worth thinking about, especially in the near term, right? Because like the eyes that we have today, those are they're more like more than a decade away from like paper clip uh, paper clipping risk. But uh, you know, if we enter a world where like the U.S. and uh, Chinese governments can make deep fakes, but no one else can, then uh, like in some ways that's worse than a world where where everyone can make deep fakes because it just you know gives it just sort of unbe- you know Unbalances the yeah, balance of power toward two particular organizations. So, I you know I think uh, this th- like that stuff is also uh, stuff that's uh, probably worth uh, thinking about, and it's definitely been more on my minds than uh, it has been six months ago. But uh, you know, we'll see.
1: That's interesting. Yeah, and I, I'm wondering hmm. if you um, you vibe at all with uh, with Peter Thiel's take where. AI is kind of a centralizing technology, whereas whereas crypto is a technology of decentralization and almost like a defense, a a bulwark against the centralizing Hmm. uh, functions of AI. Does anything in that idea resonate with you?
0: I mean, that's an idea
1: that I've repeated myself
0: multiple times, right? I think uh, the question is like, how do we take that from sort of the world of theory and the world of like abstractly thinking about AI and crypto as sort of Ideologies for the world, and into the question of like, well, what concretely can crypto do to try to mitigate the chance that uh, AI leads to centralizing everything?
2: Which is faster or further along in its roadmap, Ethereum or generalized AI?
0: That's a good (laughs) question. It depends on how far you uh, like how far you want to go. I do still expect that uh, we are going to get Ethereum, f- like fully finishing its vision before we'll get to to a
1: human level AI. But like even close to human level AI, like that's going to start to make our world look very different. This is a uh, fantastic uh, bear market content for us on the AI side of things. <laughs> um, I think actually we want to explore this a bit further. Vitalik. Ryan's taking notes. Yeah, taking notes. <laughs> I, I'm curious from your perspective. Is there anyone in the AI field that uh, we should be talking to on Bankless as we're looking at this? Mm. I will will think about this, and um, if I find names, I will send them to you. Fantastic. Beautiful. Vitalik, Mm -hmm. it has been a pleasure talking to you about what is next for Ethereum. We didn't say it at the outset, but uh, congratulations to you, to Mm -hmm. us, to the entire Ethereum community for this major milestone and uh, getting to this point. Congratulations to you too. It's uh, all been a great journey. Mm -hmm. Bankless Nation, we've got some action items for you. Lots in the show notes today. Uh, number one is Proof of Stake, which is the, vo- the book that Vitalik uh, has come out with. And this is, I think, Vitalik, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of your blog posts only in book mm-hmm. form, which makes it more accessible for for um, for people. Is that correct? Yes. Also, uh, some links to the posts that we talked about today, the paths to single slot finality. DAOs are not... Co- uh, corporations on Vitalik's website and what does Vitalik think about network states will also include a link to the MEV boost website where you could see all of the builders and relayers in production as always got to end with risks and disclaimers crypto
0: is risky Luna is risky uh, <laughs> Luna is extremely risky but to be honest Ethereum is risky too you could lose <laughs> what you put in but we're headed West this is the frontier um, this Technically, it's uh, the London hard fork, but it's still the frontier. It's uh, not for everyone, but uh, we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot.